Well, as I said, open your Bibles to Genesis chapter 1. Genesis chapter 1. We're going to be looking at the entire chapter tonight, walking through it piece by piece. And last week we started out this summer series called uh, Applied Anthropology. And um, we're, uh, we're looking at creation and culture. Tonight we're going to be looking at the Creator's worldview. And we're going to look at this series really in two parts because we have a natural break right in the middle of it. Um, and so, first of all, we're going to lay the foundation of creation. As I say, going back to Genesis 1, we're going to see what the Bible teaches about uh, the, the world and mankind, and we're going, to, we're going to learn how that sets the guidepost for all of, of living. So the, the purpose of doing this is not just to get a, a view of, uh, of origins, but it's, it's unto an end. In the second half, then we're going to apply that to some thorny cultural issues such as gender and homosexuality and, and other things. And when we get there, that's the applied part of the, uh, of the anthropology. We'll answer questions like, how does being made in the image of God, how does that make a difference practically in life? I mean, we know that truth, um, but, but what does that mean? We'll answer questions like, uh, how does that guide our purpose on the, the earth? I counsel people, and they love the Lord, and, and sometimes they'll, they'll just get this sense of, you know, what, what am I doing with, with, with life? I mean, I'm not a pastor. I'm not a missionary. I don't have some, uh, you know, great ministry to do. And so they kind of feel aimless, and, and that's not how you should feel if you are a, a believer being a pastor and a missionary is not the only two things to do. Uh, and so we'll see how creation actually gives you that, the rudder for, for life. But what does it demand scripturally? I mean, basically, how do you image the, the image bearer? You bear his image. So what does that mean? And how does that, how does that direct your life? So we'll study creation to get that and the mankind's unique part of it. And then we'll, we'll apply that biblical anthropology to, to issues that that are dominating our culture right now, but they're not, they're not new. Um, biblical roles are rooted in creation. Men and women have unique function. Biblical distinctions are rooted in creation, male and female. Biblical purposes for life are rooted in creation, taking dominion, working, raising children. And biblical sexuality is rooted in, in God's genesis, in His creation of mankind, marriage versus sexual sin, and that's where we'll be ultimately, that's where we'll ultimately arrive, but we're going to lay this biblical foundation first, and so we're going to go to the same place that Jesus went, which was the, the beginning, the verse that you know well, it's when he is arguing or answering the, the argument of the Pharisees, they're trying to trip him up. And Jesus is answering them about marriage and divorce. And he says, he answered and said, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? That's not just a, a passage that informs us about God's view of marriage. It, it teaches us how the Savior, your Savior, viewed Genesis. 
as well as how he, he, he saw a pre-fall creation, the pre-fall creation of, of God. First, it tells us that he believed it, right? I mean, he's not going to appeal to it if he, if he thinks it's some, uh, you know, some hyperbole or, 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 or some allegory. He took it as a literal fact, which is not what I can say about every, every Christian or person that claims to be a Christian. And, and notice he said, he created them, uh, he who created them made them. There's two completely different words used there. Created means to form or to fashion, i.e. the word creation. And as we'll see in Genesis, it was, it was out of nothing, and it was by fiat or by, by command. But the word, word made is different. It, it means to do something to that creation. It means to render what you've made in a, in a specific form or fashion. So, so he brought them into the world. He created them. He who brought them into the world specifically rendered or specifically made his creation with, with two sexes, male and, and female. And it's pretty plain by this verse that Jesus was not an evolutionist. Nor was, was he gender fluid. I mean, Adam and Eve were not they, them. They were male and female. It's, it's explicit. It's, it's plain. But this verse also tells us how Jesus viewed the Bible. He viewed it as authoritative, and he also pointed people to it as their authority. They asked the question of him, the Son of God. He could have just said, I'm God. Listen to what I'm about to say, but that's not what he does. Why? Because as God, he's already spoken and already, already given the answer. So he points them to the authority that all human beings need to look to, which is, which is Scripture. He answered and said, have you not read something else significant? <laughs> Clearly tells us that not only is the Bible is our authority, but we need to read it. We need to go to it. We need to look to, look to it. And sadly, some people have never done that. Why do we do missions? Well, ultimately, for the glory of Christ, so, so Jesus may receive the reward that is due, His name, uh, the bride that He purchased on the cross. You, you, you take the, the, the name of Christ everywhere, and the, the means by which God gathers His bride is through the proclamation of the gospel, so ultimately God's, God's glory. Um, but, but human beings, there are people on the earth that have never, never heard the name, and they, they've never read God's Word. I can remember a, a missionary friend of mine who, as far as I know, is still in Hiroshima, Japan. I was talking to somebody about them the other night at the, at the house. They went on a short-term mission trip, and, and uh, their job was to, was to catch um, tourists. These were Asian tourists. I think they were from China. And they were visiting a, a westernized Asian country. And so they go there, and they, they handed out Bibles. Um, and the majority of people that they handed Bibles to um, was the first time they'd ever heard a co- held a copy of, of God's Word. And I can remember her and her husband just being in tears, talking about the experience of handing a copy of God's Word and watching another human being that had never laid hold of God's Word open it up for the first time and read the words of their Creator. A lot of people have the Bible, and they don't ever even pick up the book and see the amazing clarity that their Creator communicates to them in it. I think even sadder than that, there are people who do read the Bible and just flatly reject what it says 
Last week we talked about some people that do that, right? The, the, those who try to explain origins by a human theory, something that they did not observe, something that they don't have all the data about, and they can't even comprehend it because of its, because of its majesty. And men apart from God's Word uh, are like a, a kindergartner walking into a multivariable calculus class and attempting to explain what's on the board. They'll be able to make out some numbers and letters, but they have no idea what the formula means. And that's a good way to describe a human being, looking at creation with the theory of evolution. They can make out some numbers and letters, but they have no idea what it means apart from Scripture. And the basic teaching of this competing view of, of origins is given enough time and the right conditions and random events, anything is possible. And we saw how unscientific that was. It fails the test of falsifiability. It's unreasonable because the theory's foundation requires illogical conclusions like chance is a force. And, and then it's inconsistent because it doesn't want to deal with the problem of, of morality. I mean, when you boil it down, it's just a way to rule out God and deny the existence of, of judgment. And there are other views that we could look at, but for time's sake we won't, like intelligent design and let me just say, if we did go through that, you would be unimpressed by them as well. It attempts to hold hands with the world and reconcile the Bible with science uh, and denies the sufficiency of the biblical text. I mean, most ID theories are simply an attempt to keep people from an all-out rejection of the Bible and maintain scientific boundaries while they, while they do it. So evolution attempts to rule out God in intelligent design, the theory uh, attempts to rule over God's Word. And tonight we're going to look at creation from the perspective of the Creator Himself, the one who was actually there, um, who tells us exactly what, what, what happened. And I'll warn you, if, if you don't already know this, I'm sure you do, a literal creation is countercultural, um, but no less true. I mean, in very many ways, your belief in Jesus Christ and His Word will place you in a path of, of, a, of a violently opposing culture. Jesus was not kidding in John 15, 9 when he says, if you were of the world, the world would love its own. But because you're not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, because of this the world hates you. Hate means to detest. It, it, it means to pursue with hatred. And, and that's the response that you should e e expect. It's nothing new, though. You're not the the first one to face this, this opposition. Athanasius, an early bishop of Alexandria in the 4th century, uh, opposed the teachings of Arius, which declared that Christ was not the eternal Son of God, but a created being. And, and after five exiles, he was finally summoned uh, before the emperor, who, who demanded that he cease his opposition to Arius. And the emperor reproved him, and asked him, do you not realize that all the world is against you? And Athanasius quickly answered, then I am against all the world. Amen. And that's exactly how you should think concerning what Scripture clearly teaches. And if you believe what I'm about to preach to you, in a number of places there will be that kind of opposition, even though it's more reasonable and more logical than the world's opinion. So let, let's look at the Creator's view of the origin of life. Look, if you would, at verse 1 of Genesis. It says, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was formless and void, and darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was moving over the surface of the waters. 
I mean, here you have the straightforward declaration of creation that's very easy to understand. I mean, God declares, this is what I did, and this is how I did it. From the very beginning, from the very first verse, the God of eternity says, I created out of nothing and by command. There's no explanation to smooth off the offense of the human mind. There's no attempt to soften the blow to someone who believes something else. He just says, by my word, the heavens and the earth were created. The the Greek name for the book, Genesis, even means origins. And in the first ten succinct words, God summarizes all of chapter 1 and chapter 2. All that we know as reality is, is contained in this, these first two verses. I mean, everything that can be known materially and observed is found in verse 1. Herbert Spencer, a scientist who died in 1903, was noted primarily for a categorical discovery. He discovered that all reality, all that exists in the universe, can be contained in five categories. Time force, action, space, and matter. Time, force, action, space, and matter. He even listed them in in their logical sequence. And here they are in verse 1 of Genesis in order. In the beginning, time, God, force, created, action, the heavens, space, the earth, matter. I mean, what man didn't even categorize until the end of the 19th century, God shouted with concise authority in the first ten words of the first verse of the Bible. God is even in the plural in the Hebrew, allowing for the Trinity. And the rest of chapter 1 just gives the sequence of all six days of creation, culminating with God's crown jewel, which is, which is mankind. The, the creation of man was different from everything else that God made because he would be created in the image of God. Have you ever wondered why you read chapter 1 and then you read chapter 2? It almost seems like a repeat. I mean, did did, did Moses like put the book down and forget where he, what he just wrote before so he tries to start over? That's not the purpose. Chapter 2 is an encore of creation, the creation of man, focusing on on, on mankind, describing the creation of man in great detail. And the rest of Scripture just reveals how this Creator relates and works in grace toward this creation, specifically mankind. Let's look at the six days in, in detail. Here's the, the first day. If you would at verse 2. This is the earth was formless and void and darkness was over the the surface of the deep and the spirit of God was moving over the surface of the waters. This is a literal this is a literal account of what took place. Verse 2 describes this barren uninhabited universe. I mean tonight whenever you go out when it gets dark you look up and you see stuff in the sky. You you see green trees when you drive home. You you're you're here and you may have a dog waiting on you whenever you get back there, or a fish in a, in a fish bowl. But, but here this describes the, the universe as barren and uninhabited in the first 24 hours. The earth and the universe and space were created here in verse 1, and 
but it's not as, as, as we know it or as we see it. It was empty. It was black. It was without form, verse 2 tells us. Uh, and then out of nothing, in an instant, the eternal God created by decree. He has that kind of power. Time out of eternity, material out of immaterial, space out of nothingness. Can you comprehend that? You cannot comprehend that, neither can I. And the only matter that existed was the earth in this formless, barren state. It was shrouded in darkness and it was covered in water. And it was empty of light and life. And this, it was a, it was a mass of water in blackness. And the Hebrew for without form means barren, a wasteland, a desolate place. The, the raw material was there, but it hadn't been given form yet. Uh, one commentator said this is like a, like a lump of clay. He speaks the lump of clay into existence and... And then in, in, in verses 2 and 3 and 4, the, the, the pot is made, and then it's filled. The pot is filled in verses 4, 5, and, and 6. And so here we have the clay, the universe in total darkness, and it was the Spirit of God who moved first upon the, the, the waters. Verse 2, the Spirit of God was moving. He was moving over the, the surface of this, this water, this blackness, this... This unformed substance, God begins to move over creation like, like one who covers something. Um, I mean, if you want to use that clay an analogy, it's like the, it's like the hands about, about to be placed over the, over the clay as it's, and the Spirit of God begins to spin it. God covered this mass of formless matter and begins to envelop it with His presence and like a potter over His clay. The, the word for move means to... The Spirit of God moves, it, he, he broods or He envelops, He surrounds. It's used two other times in the Old Testament for stirring up a nest and a prophet's whole body shaking at the Word of God in Jeremiah 23, 3-9. The Spirit moves, He transfers or stirs up the creation with His power and, 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 and by this the Holy Spirit of God sets the, the forming of creation in motion, and as He does, the omnipotent God speaks. And Look at what He says in verse 3. And God said, Let there be light. And there was light. The entire Trinity is involved in this creation. The Spirit transferring His power, God speaking, and Christ is the actual Creator, Colossians tells us. We find the words, and God said for the first time, and over and over throughout the six days, uh, it, it, it's going to repeat this. And God said, let there be, and there was. Just simple, matter-of-fact, straightforward commands and statements. That is God directly, personally causing creation by verbal decree, and it was. And He says here, let there be light. And instantaneously, or instantly, I should say, light burst into the darkness. It's the source that it's not the sun because the sun's created on day four in verse 16. But light in creation. I mean, like, uh, like someone coming, into, uh, coming to arrange the items in a dark room and before he does, he turns the light on, one, one writer said. I mean, light's unique. Physicists struggle to explain or even define light. It has characteristics like a particle and a wave. It takes up no space but moves at a measurable velocity. We, we measure light years. And, but it can't be defined that way either. 
can't be defined as a particle or a wave. I, I'm quoting now. It's an it's, it is electromagnetic radiation, including radio waves, microwaves, and infrared waves at the high end, and ultraviolet X-rays and gamma radiation at the low end. In the middle is visible light, which includes the colors of the rainbow. And when you hear light here, you think the sun, but, but that's not what, what light is. The, the sun simply radiates light. And here light is created. Light is mind-bending, which is why the, the Lord uses it to describe Himself because of what it is and all of its attributes. I mean, Jesus said of Himself in John 9, I am the light of the world. John 1 4 and 5, and the light shines into the darkness, and the darkness comprehended it not. John three nineteen, and this is the condemnation, that light has come into the world, and men love darkness rather than light because their deeds were, were evil. I mean, men don't comprehend the light, men don't want the light, and Jesus Christ is that light. One commentator said, like light, he has visible and invisible attributes. Some all men can see, and some only the redeemed can behold. Like light, he has two characteristics that, that define, uh, which make it impossible to explain, the characteristics of God and man. And in his godhood, he is unbound by space, and yet he chooses to be definable as the Son of Man. I mean, he's amazing, isn't he? I mean, God created light, and then he, he uses it to separate his creation. Another parallel we could draw because Christ divides men. Look at verse 4. And God said the, the light was good and God separated the light from darkness. He separated the light from the darkness. This barren, uninhabited, formless earth, shrouded in darkness, covered in water, stirred up by the Spirit's movement, now has light. And God separates the light from the darkness. It's the first of three separations that's going to take place in creation. Light from darkness in verse 4, water from the sky in verse 6, and then the waters from the earth in verse 9. And Here you have the beginning of a 24-hour day. Light was confined somehow to, to heaven. It is now expanded into the created realm and shines beginning time as we, we know it. Without the sun, and he names it. He calls the light day, and the darkness he calls night. Look at verse 5. He called the light day, and the darkness he called night, and there was evening, and there was morning. One day, or the first day, day one. The, to name something in Hebrew is a sign of lordship, which is when we get there, we'll, we'll mention that again, when God brings the created beings before Adam to name. Adam will now have dominion over the, over the animals. And here God is expressing lordship or dominion over, over his creation. God says, this is what you are. This is what you'll be called. Just like you have the, the, the privilege of naming your, your children. And your children will thank you if you do that very well and think about things that their names rhyme with or things that they can be made fun of. But you, as a parent, have the ability to name your children. God names his creation here. And after he names day and night, he announces there was evening and morning, and he says it was good. 
In day one, God brings order to creation and separation, and here he begins the rhythm of night and day without the bodies to regulate them. And on day two, on the second 24-hour period, the clay now begins to be formed. As the day dawns, the earth is a sphere covered in water, hung by nothing in empty space, just as Job 26 tells us. And God speaks and creates a breathable atmosphere. Look at verse 6. Then God said, Let there be an expanse in the, middle of the, in the midst of the waters, and let it separate the waters from the waters. He says there will be a firmament in the midst of the waters, and let it divide under and over. The firmament is an expanse between the waters. And so you have this, 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 this space between, between waters. God speaks and water separates. One part goes upward, the other part remains downward, and he places between them this expanse of breathable air that blankets the water that's left below. Creates the breathable atmosphere. This space the Lord places there is now like a large canopy above the earth, and it's holding back the waters above. The Hebrew word for firmament or expanse is the the word to, to beat out or spread out. Beat flat. It's, it's like taking something and stretching it out in a, in a large sheet form. Like if you've ever watched your mother roll out, roll out dough. It's the same word in Exodus 39.3 for the hammering of, of gold into sheets to spread over things, the temple and, and otherwise. And the firmament acted like this protective layer, shielding creation. And verse 8, he calls the firmament heaven. Look at verse 8. God called the expanse heaven. Now there was evening and there was morning a second day. The, the expanse he calls heaven is the atmospheric heaven. And now you have all three completed and you have the second 24-hour calendar day. We're not even past the first 18 verses of the, uh, of the Bible and the answers pour forth one after, after another from the one who was there. I mean, the problem is not that creation can't be explained. The problem is that man chooses not to believe what God says here. It's not an intellectual problem. It's a sin problem because this makes perfect sense if you believe in the supernatural God and His Word. And you should. Vance Havner, the old country preacher, said, A wife who is 85% faithful to her husband is not faithful at all. There's no such thing as a part-time loyalty to Jesus Christ or His Word. You, you can't take a penknife and cut Genesis 1 out of your Bible and then believe what it says about salvation in Romans 4. Day 3, look at verse 9. Then God said, Let the waters below the heavens be gathered into one place and let dry land appear. And it was so. So God speaks again here. Then He gathers the water of the earth in one place. And brings forth dry land. You have a, an empty universe with light but no stars. You have time, space, and matter now created. You, you have water above and water upon the earth with air in between. You have the cycle of day and night. And now in one day, God makes the earth uh, inhabitable by bringing forth dry land and vegetation. The earth will be completed at the end of this day. The earth, the pot, the 
the vase, whatever we're making out of this lump of clay. I mean, I marvel at the simplicity of, of, of the Bible in places like this. When you think about what's happening here. I mean, the statement's so matter-of-fact and, and, and it's simple, but, but astonishing things are taking place. I mean, God said, again, showing that all of this is by His command, let, let the waters below be gathered, and the third separation takes place. Land and sea. Beneath the water, this solid matter that, that He created that was hidden now rises and becomes dry land. And here we're told the seas are gathered into one place and they're, they're separated by, by dry land. Job 38, chapter 4, I mean, sorry, verse 4, tells us about this in detail. You remember God, whenever He finally speaks to Job, after 38 chapters, remember what He asked Job? Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? That's what He's telling us about here in Genesis 1. Speaking of this day, where were you on this day, Job? Tell me if you have understanding. Who set its measurements since you know? Who stretched it out in a line? And, and, what were, uh, and on what were its bases sunk? Or who laid its cornerstone? When the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for, for joy... Or who enclosed the sea with doors when bursting forth it went from the womb? When I made a cloud its garment and thick darkness its swaddling band and placed boundaries on it and set a bolt and doors. And I said, thus far you shall come but no farther. And here you shall, here shall your proud waves stop speaking the boundaries of the land. The land comes up. And it has defined distinct boundaries and God tells the waters you will stop here and land you will begin here. Have you ever in your life commanded the morning and caused the dawn to know its place? It's one of my favorite passages in Scripture. Psalm 104 can be even more specific. It's even more specific. He begins and ends with a question and he answers it himself. I mean, here's a, a picture right before the command on day three that we just read. Psalm 104, verse 5. He established the earth on its foundations so that it will not totter forever and ever. You covered it with the deep as with a garment. The waters were standing above the mountains. And then verse 7, which is not up on your board. Just listen. At your rebuke they fled... At the sound of your thunder, they hurried away. The mountains rose, the valleys sank down to the place which you established for them. You set a boundary that they may not pass over so that they will not return to cover the earth. He sends forth springs in the valleys. They flow between the mountains. They give drink to every beast of the field. Wild donkeys quench their thirst. You set a boundary that they may not pass over it so they will not return to cover the earth. Water at one point covered all of the earth and then God separates the waters from the land and, and then He draws the boundaries and now that's fixed. So God lays the foundations of, of the earth and draws out the boundaries whenever, whenever he, he speaks. Mountains rise up out of the water, deep valleys sink downward, and the water flows. The construction here allows for one land mass and one sea, probably separated during the, the global flood of Noah. 
when the canopy is opened, the water above pours down upon the earth and the deep bursts forth and the, the land mass, this one land mass was probably altered at, at that point. Genesis 7:11 describes this. In the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month, on the 17th day of the month, on the same day, all the fountains of the great deep burst open and the floodgates of the sky were opened. And he does the same thing when he stops the flood. Genesis 8, 2. It's not up there. Listen to this. Also the fountains of the deep and the floodgates of the sky were closed. And the rain from the skyward was restrained. You think that's hard for the God that made it to begin with? (laughs) To open it up and close it? Of course not. But that event was catastrophic. I mean, it changed the lifespan of mankind from 800 to 900 years to 70 to 80. It changed the diet of creatures. I was thinking about that today at lunchtime, patting out hamburgers. I'm eating the flesh of another creation. And before the flood, that was not something I was commanded to do. And even better, whenever you get to Peter, I can eat bacon on that hamburger. It changed the atmosphere. It changed the ecological system. Probably even the continental plates. When the waters again cover the earth in the flood and dry land is once again submerged, just like it was. Remember what's happening in in the days of Noah. God's starting over, if you will. He's wiping out all of mankind except for for this this one family that he preserves on the ark. And and the earth goes back to this, this, this water form to cleanse it destroy it, and he remakes it. And and then you have immediately this this new garden scene when when God shows back up to Noah and says, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth, and you can eat now not just what the trees produce, but, but animals. And so when the water again covers the earth in the flood and dry land is submerged, the foundations of the earth become fluid and land masses are separated and with the mass of water from above and forced up from beneath, you have this downward and upward pressure at the same time, and no doubt that, that affected land masses. Today, the Earth's surface is about 30% land and about 70% water, 57 million square miles of land, about 139 million square miles of water, The Earth's crust contains over 2,000 different minerals, but just eight elements make up 99% of it. About a fifth of the Earth's land surface is mountainous. Another eight is covered in desert. Look at verse 10, Genesis 1. God called the dry land earth, and he gathered, and the gathering of the waters he called seas. And God saw that it was good. And then having created a tangible surface, he begins to fill it, creating mature plant life. If you would, at verse 11. Then God said, let the earth, which you just named, dry land, let the dry land sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed and fruit trees on the earth, bearing fruit after their kind with seed in them. And it was so. He first creates the land that was inhabitable by life. You you have land and water and air and light, which you need for life. And he brings forth plants. But did you notice something? Did you notice that they're mature? 
You see that? Look at the verse again. These plants have seeds. And so do the trees. This is an important statement, just like the, like the statement for day, the yom in Hebrew. It disallows the theory of evolution or millions of years. It's, it's even repeated. There's a specific day, one day, the evening and the morning, just so we're, we don't miss it. These are fully formed and mature plants and trees created instantaneously, uh, already bearing seed to reproduce in them. They're, they're, they're not some cellular form or ooze that then grows into that. You can't believe this text and believe millions of years, much less hundreds of years. It's either one or the other. Trees and vegetation brought forth after its kind. Look at verse 12. The earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed after their kind, and trees bearing fruit with seed in them after their kind. After, after their kind is another important statement because it disallows macroevolution. We believe in microevolution, there can be changes that happen. Um, if you go to West Virginia, the gene pool in West Virginia is very specific. It's very distinct, isn't it? People even start to look like one another in West Virginia. People look like one another in Africa or in Asia or other. There's microevolution that happens. Genes become dominant, in a specific, but you don't have, you don't have the, the change of kind we don't believe in macroevolution, the crossing of species. God creates the complete genetic makeup of each plant and tree here. Apple trees bring forth other trees. Roses bring forth other flowers or roses. And this law is seen in other areas. It's repeated in the New Testament, echoed in the New Testament about sowing and reaping. It's the law of the harvest. The Bible says what, you, what, what seed you put in the ground is what's going to come up out of the ground and he says that was the end of the third day, and he declared it good. I would say that is good. That's quite a bit. So what started as barren and dark and formless is now formed and filled with green trees, laden with fruit, colored flowers, and blue seeds, all prepared to be filled with God's creatures created on the next day in three days. Day four. God fills the heavens. Look at verse 14. Then God said, Let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night, and let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and for years. I mean, here God creates the light, the light giving bodies, and gives them a, a specific purpose why He made them. The sun and the moon and the stars are all created on day four. They're, they were spoken into existence like, like the rest with the phrase, let there be. This is different from day one. Light was created on day one. Light just was, and he separated it from the, from the darkness. Day four, he creates light-giving bodies, lights that uh, at a given location, and he separates the, the day from the night. The rhythm of day and night existed on day one without bodies to regulate them. And now the bodies are given to regulate them. And or as verse 18 says, to rule over them. God will now regulate uh, what He created with these celestial bodies. I mean, how important is the sun and the moon to our lives? Not, not just the beauty of them to look at or to receive the warmth. 
I mean, they're more important than you may realize. They, they regulate our sleep. They set the tides. They affect when we work. They affect navigation. I mean, even the migration of birds are guided by the sun and the moon. And God tells us He created them for that purpose. He tells us why He did it right here. Look at verse 14. Then God said, Let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night, and let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and years. MacArthur says there's a separation here. There's signs, there's seasons, there's a system of time, and there's a source of light. They're for a separation. The sun and the moon will now mark or delineate day and night rhythm and separate from rising and, the, and setting the, the day and night. I mean, I, I know you probably can't, but just try. Can you imagine? I mean, here's the earth with vegetation and water, and as day four begins, the first sunrise. First sunrise in an uncursed world. I mean, so awesome is the sun, we get up before it does at the beach to watch it come up, don't we? We take our lawn chairs and sit out there and watch the, the sun set and marvel at how quickly it, it disappears. The sun rises in the morning and that night, the once black moonless sky is now populated with millions of stars. On this day, the stars were created for signs. Verse 14 says, let them be for signs. And the, the Hebrew word for sign means a beacon or a signal. Let, let them be for a signal to you. The sun and the moon and the stars were created to be used by man and the animals. God's creation as pinpoints for, for navigation. And human beings have been doing that forever. What one writer I, I read noted... They have actually put birds in a planetarium with normal star patterns and they fly in the same direction. But if they rearrange the star patterns, the birds get confused. <laughs> Stars have always been seen as a sign. And they'll be used for signs at the, at the very end. Jesus says in Matthew 24, 29, but immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will will not give its light, and the stars will fall from the sky, and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. It'll be a sign. He also says they're for seasons. Seasons are determined by the sun and the moon. Summer, winter, spring, and fall are, are controlled by the celestial bodies. I mean, God designed it that way. And how foolish to think something that this intricate just happened. I mean, he mentions a system of time. He, he says for days and years. He created it for days, and he created it this way for years. The, the sun determines our years and our days, and the moon, our months. It takes 27 and a half days to orbit. The earth rotates 24 hours in one day, and, and all of these were created for this order and for this purpose. Did you notice that there's one time frame? that's not mentioned in this verse? It's the seven-day week. You have a month, you have a year that's regulated by the stars, by the sun, the moon. But a seven-day week is not. So where do we get the week from? Well, you know, 
There's nothing in the sun and the moon that, or rhythm that demands a week. We get it from the week of creation, which is a constant reminder of the Creator and our accountability to Him, which is why the, the Sabbath or Shabbat is so important in Judaism. Every day you step toward the day in which you, you celebrate the Creator. Notice the earth is at the center of this creation. Look at verse 16. God made the two great lights, the greater light to govern the day and the lesser light to govern the night. He made the stars also. I mean, look at how unassuming the ending of that verse is. Hey, he made the stars also. I mean, it's stated almost as an afterthought. Billions of stars so massive that the earth looks like the head of a pin. Billions of stars to where God says to Abraham to show, how, to show Abraham how, how weak and his own inability, he says, count them if you can. You can't, can you? I mean, many astron- astronomers gaze out into the universe and they downplay the earth. They say, we're small. We are. But God says we're the center of his universe. I mean, why does the entire creation account center around the earth? The stars were created to set the patterns of the earth, to set the the seas and day and night. It it was because all of creation was made to support God's pinnacle creation, made in His image, mankind. I mean, all the statements, let them be for, let them be for. It's all focused on the earth. Not the stars themselves. The stars were created and let them be for this. This is the purpose that they were made. And so when someone says to you, what do you think? That the the universe revolves around you? You can say, well, actually in Christ it does. And the sun sets. God pronounces day four good. Day five. The filling of the sky and sea. Look at verse 20. God said, let the waters teem with swarms of living creatures and let birds fly above the earth in the open expanse of the heavens. On day five, God fills the firmament of heaven and and water with all manners of birds and fish. Some were big, some were small. But it says they swarmed with living creatures. This is the first making of a living creature. I mean, I know plants and trees are biological organisms, but but they're not living creatures, as we would call them. They're they're not conscious. They're not able to relate to themselves or other creatures. The water was created on day one, separated on day two, gathered together on day three, and now it teems with swarms of living creatures at God's commands. I mean... The open expanse that was created on day two, regulated with bodies of light on day four, now is filled with flying creatures, both great and small. Do you see the pattern here? He creates, and then he orders, and then he fills. He creates, he orders, and he fills. And it's not much different in your salvation. He creates, brings you to life from the dead, Then he orders, he puts your life in order, and then he fills for use. He fills you with the Spirit and with the gifts to be used. Notice again, it's like creatures, verse 21, it says, after its kind. I mean, the complexity is amazing. 
just go on and on and on. If you want a blow-by-blow of this and even, even a lot of the information, these details I give you from MacArthur's book on creation, it's just excellent. You, you, you could find a number of sources. You could describe the complexity of human life. The complexity, though, is amazing. Uh, one commentator described the archer fish. Archer fish. Have you ever heard of an archer fish? I didn't, I've never heard of an archer fish. It lives in fresh water and rivers at the mouths of the sea. It can spit jets of water at insects resting on a leaf or branches up to five feet away, which is why it's called an archer fish. Knocking the bug into the water. Its eyes have sharp binocular vision that enables it to judge distance and adjust for the water's refractions and its camouflage to match its environment. Ken Ham's favorite example, the woodpecker. It can peck up to 500 times a minute or 8 times per second with force equal to 18 miles per hour. 18 miles per hour, 8 times per second. That's fast. One preacher said, I have no problem believing that because my wife can peck twice that rate. Yeah, ooh, all right. I'll get back to the message before I get in trouble. Imagine, though, running as fast as you can, running into a tree 500 times in one minute. I mean, you knock yourself out, you, you kill yourself. But this bird's head has a shock absorber to protect its brain. I mean, how does an animal do such a thing? Well, as Buddy from AIG said, it was designed to do what it does, and what it does do, it does well. It was created that way. Did you know in Greenbank, West Virginia, the U.S. government has its SETI program, S-E-T-I, that stands for the Search for Extraterrestrial Intelligence. This is true. Ashton James has been there. (laughs) The Search for Aliens is centered in West Virginia. They scan space with these giant radio waves with massive dishes. They're listening devices. And and all they hear and all they've ever heard is random noise. But did you know what they would say if they heard noise that was identifiable as a pattern? They would flip out. They would say that's proof that intelligent life exists somewhere out there. Why? Because there's a pattern. That would indicate something organized that sound. Yet people would say all of this intricate design that I just described to you with the archer fish and the woodpecker and everything else is just by random chance. I mean, how blind and how contradictory, isn't it? God ends day five with a blessing to be fruitful and multiply and fill the waters of the sea. That brings us to day six. Oh, what a special day. It's where you came from. Look at verse 24. Then God said, let the earth bring forth living creatures after their kind, cattle and creeping things and beasts of the the earth after their kind, and it was so. On day six, God creates every living creature that creeps on the ground, the land animals, the insects, all mature and created. And, And you can see three distinct categories in this verse. There are 
There's domestic things like, like cattle or creeping things like insects and reptiles. Beasts of the field, that's kind of a general category that includes all others. Notice they're not all named. He doesn't say he created dogs and sheep and cats and rats, etc. He, he just gives categories. But he says all. All land animals were created on day six. So question, when were the dinosaurs created? Well, they're created right here on day six. They creep on the ground. Dinosaurs were created with all other land animals. Like every other animal type that has become extinct, probably due to the changes of the flood, we don't know for sure. So why would we, why would we not question um, if a dog was made on day six, since it doesn't mention dogs? Well, we say, well, because dogs are normal. I have a dog around. I've never seen a dinosaur. Well, the only reason we think about dinosaurs the way we do is because of what we've been taught in school or on, on TV. When you look at creation, it's very plain what the Bible says. You may not know this, but all of those evolutionary ideas are very recent about dinosaurs. Dinosaurs, uh, the remains were not even discovered until the 1800s. There's a, some evidence of late 1600s. That fossil has been lost. An English doctor, Gideon Mantell, and his wife found some large teeth in a query. And he thought the teeth were of a large iguana. He thought he found a, a new group of reptile. 1841, nine types of those different reptiles were found, or had been found by, by 1841, and a man named Dr. Richard Owen, who was a British scientist, a creationist, by the way, was the one who gave them their name, uh, Dinosauria, meaning a terrible lizard because of large bones. That's what it made him, made him think of. And some dinosaurs were very large, up to... The 40 feet high, most of them were, were small, the size of a horse. Job possibly describes one in Job 40, verses 15 through 19, where he says, Behold now, behemoth, which I made as well as you. He eats grass like an ox. Behold now his strength in his loins and his power in the muscles of his belly. He bends his tail like a cedar. It's a long tail, strong tail. The sinews of his thighs are knit together. His bones are, are like tubes of bronze. His limbs are like bars of iron. Describes a very strong creature here. Like all the creatures, though, the dinosaurs, when they were created here, they were plant eaters until the fall. They existed alongside a man. Adam named them. In verse 25, God pronounces his work good here. And then something wonderful takes place. Everything up to this point has been a setting for what's about to happen next. It's all decoration for the next formation. Everything was created. You, you saw how the stars and everything in the universe is created for the earth. Everything created out there and on the earth is created for humanity to prepare a perfect environment for mankind. And you'll see that all the way through the Bible. Do you see even here how the, the worldly thinking has reversed everything? Do you see, you see the, the, the goal? How creation is the center, mankind's not the center. We're, we're, to, we're to bow to creation rather than taking dominion over it. 
The entire universe was created by God so that he could glorify himself by showing his grace and his mercy and his compassion on one creature, this creature who was created in his image. John MacArthur said, The unfolding creation establishes a theater in which the great redemptive saga can be played out. Man is the main character. God's own son even becomes a man at, at the climax of redemption's drama. This is the purpose the entire universe was created, so that God's grace, mercy, and compassion would be lavished on this creature who God had created in His own image. In the end, the theater will be destroyed, but this man lives on. We give you a verse 26. Then God said, Let us make man in our image according to our likeness, and let them rule over the, the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over the cattle and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. God the Trinity personally creates man in His image and likeness, distinct from all the other parts of creation. You look at the details given in this verse. There's a pattern. It, it says it was created in the image and likeness of God. Image and likeness are parallel expressions. They, they mean the same thing. They just describe one another for emphasis. The word image is... Hebrew comes from the root meaning carving. Man was, was carved into the shape of God, not physically, but, but in his image and personality and otherwise. Mankind is not like animals. He has moral responsibility. He has intelligence. He has emotion. He has knowledge and... Mankind also has spiritual attributes. He alone bears the ability to relate to God in this way. We think, we rationalize, we have a conscience, and most importantly, our Creator made us so we can have a relationship with Him. Man can create, man can speak language, and all of these things come from this attribute. It's different from all the other things. Simply, we are the image of God on the earth. The mind and the will and the emotion and the conscience and the spirit and relationship, all those things are packaged in that. And you'll have to wait till next time to hear about how those things matter. But I'll close with this. Every single one of those things were corrupted by the fall. Our mind was darkened but not rendered unable to conceive God. Our will was bound and controlled by sin, but not removed. Our conscience was dulled, but not deafened. The law of God can still instruct it, and the Spirit of God uses it to awaken us to our need of Christ, and our spirit is dead in transgression. That's able to be regenerated by the Spirit of God. What an amazing creation what you should really say is what an amazing creator. If you're sitting here and you're listening to all of this, and you, there's, one, there's a sense of this that, that you should marvel. How, how can somebody not believe this? I mean, or, or you might think of it in a negative way. How, how stupid not to believe this when the evidence is, is so plain. Be careful with that. Because the only reason that you understand this is because the Spirit of God has opened your eyes and you have received the grace and mercy of God that you might read this and believe it. That doesn't come from you because you're smarter than everybody else. 
comes because you have the mind of Christ. And you don't deserve that, and I don't deserve that. It comes to you by grace and mercy. And so if there is this kind of God, and He's given us this kind of word, and so that we might, be understand, uh, might, might understand it, then, then why would we not follow such a being, give our whole lives to, to such a being who can do these types of things? Why would we spend our time doing anything else other than being here, listening to Him and about Him? There's a poem that says, You call me master and obey me not. You call me light and see me not. You call me the way and follow me not. You call me life and desire me not. You call me wise and acknowledge me not. You call me fair and love me not. You call me rich and ask me not. You call me eternal and seek me not. You call me gracious and trust me not. You call me noble and serve me not. You call me mighty and honor me not. You call me just and fear me not. If I then condemn you, blame me not. I am so thankful in Jesus Christ. There is therefore now no condemnation. Those who are in Christ Jesus. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. What an amazing thing to behold. You, the creator, telling us what you did and how you did it. We believe it. We stand in awe. And we want to know who you are, and we want to follow you. Help us, Lord. Remember that we are but dust. Remember our frame is, is that way. We are weak and frail. Um, be merciful to us when we stumble and when we get distracted. Bring us back that we might serve you again um, in a more powerful way. We ask all this and give you praise in Jesus' name. Amen.